A few thoughts that have been on my mind for the last several weeks, and uh, hopefully the Lord will be in it. I can speak on it in such a way that you can gather something from it to make it uh, profitable to you. But you're probably very familiar with Exodus, the 20th chapter. That's where I want to go to to start with. Exodus, the 20th chapter, is going to be where you find uh, the Ten Commandments. If you remember up to this point that Israel has been delivered uh, out of the hand of the Egyptians... Uh, in a very powerful way, uh, they have uh, crossed the Red Sea. They've had some uh, very uh, intimate interactions with the Lord. Uh, they've seen Him work in a very mighty way and to provide for them and to deliver them in ways that are beyond uh, human capabilities. And they've come to Mount Sinai and Moses has gone up into the mount and he has gone up there to commune with God. And the Bible tells us he's up there uh, 40 days and 40 nights. And in that time, the Lord gives him a great deal of instruction uh, about how things should go as far as uh, you can you can read through here one day in the book of Exodus about, uh, you know, the priest and the tabernacle and how things should be assembled and what they should be assembled from. It's a very, very detailed um, uh, account of uh, some of the Lord's desires for His people. And you can imagine going somewhere for 40 days and 40 nights, you're going to get a whole lot of information. And so uh, that is what the Lord is giving to Moses. And one of the things that He does in addition to all of that is He uh, takes tables of stone and the Bible tells us with His finger He writes the laws of God, which if you read through the Ten Commandments, um, they're just kind of a, uh, an all-encompassing uh, uh, law that all these other little detailed laws that, that He gives them, if you just followed the Ten Commandments, you wouldn't be breaking any of these other laws. So there's a, there's a point in the Bible where some of the laws that He is giving uh, the Israelites, they're very, very detailed, almost exhausting. It'd be, it'd be, like, it'd be hard to remember. It'd be hard to, to, to constantly remember all those things. But if you're just following the Ten Commandments, then you're going to be covered on all those other things. So there are ten that he has written with his finger in tables of stone, and he gives them to Moses. And you read about these ten in Exodus, the 20th chapter. And it says, um, I'm going to start in verse 1 here. And it says, And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and number one, he says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And he goes on down and says, Thou shalt not make unto thy, to thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow thyself down to them. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. And he goes on and he gives you the rest of them. And I'm not going to read those for the, for the sake of time. Now, it's important to, to think about this. The Lord is giving His people a set of laws. And the reason, you know, if, have you noticed that He does not put... Uh, in the Ten Commandments, he, he doesn't say, you shall not spread your wings and fly. Because we're not capable of that, right? But He gives us things here that one, He knows we're going to struggle with. He knows that there's going to be a temptation for us and He gives us these rules. And sometimes over you know, in the Levitical law, He gets so specific 
about some of the things He does not want us to do. And the reason He does that is because He knows some of these people are going to try to do these things. And He probably also knows that some of the nations that they're going to interact with are already doing these things and it's going to be very easy for them to intermingle with some nations that do not honor me as God and they're going to uh, let their habits and their sinfulness rub off on them. So he gives us these things because he knows that we're going to struggle with them at times. And it's going to be a temptation to us. And you may say, oh, wait, wait, wait. There is no way that I would ever put another God before God Almighty, big G. You say there's no way that that would ever happen. Well, there is a way. And it actually happens very quickly and it happens very easily. If you think about during this time um, that Moses is up there receiving this. So here's all the Israelites and they've come through all these miraculous things. I want you to imagine if you would have been them. What if you would have been an Israelite, a Hebrew, standing at the edge of the Red Sea, watching Pharaoh's army bear down on you, turn around and you see the Red Sea part and you cross it like it was dry land. You turn around and you see it fall in on Pharaoh and all of his soldiers and you have been delivered from the hand of your enemy. Imagine that was you. You probably would say, there is no way I will ever serve another God. Alright, this is very shortly after this has happened. And Moses goes up into the mount 40 days and 40 nights. And I want to read this to you if I can find it here. It's in Deuteronomy. I like the way it's written. I'll read it to you. This is why Moses is up on the mount. The Lord has, has given him the Ten Commandments. And it says, And the Lord said unto me, this is in Deuteronomy, the ninth chapter, verse 12, And the Lord said unto me, Arise, get thee down quickly, From hence, for thy people which thou hast brought forth out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They are quickly turned aside out of the way which I have commanded them. They have made them a molten image. Now, we're talking about 40 days. That's five weeks. In five weeks' time, these people that have seen this great deliverance at the Red Sea, five weeks later... They say, well, I don't know what happened to Moses. We better make us a golden calf. It happens that fast. It happens quickly. You say, the Lord has done so much good for me. The Lord has been so real to me. I would never turn my back and worship another God. Listen, the Lord has done the same for me. But He's never parted the Red Sea like that. And these people who have had a one-on-one encounter with the mighty power of God in a way that I never have... In five weeks' time, they've turned away and they've made a molten image of a calf. Now, that's a, that's, that ought to be a little bit startling to us, right? Because the same nature that they have is the same nature that I have. To quickly turn aside from something. Now, the Lord tells us, don't have any gods other than me. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Because I know you're going to be prone to do it. I know how quickly it can happen. So in, this table, in these tables of stone, I'm writing with my finger to not let that happen. Now, it most certainly can be proven in the Bible that that's a temptation for us. If you go back to the very beginning in Genesis, the third chapter. This is in the Garden of Eden. 
in a, in a, in a, a, a place of, of perfection, in a place where Adam and Eve don't have a corrupt nature, where they're not corrupted by sin. And the serpent is talking to Eve, and it says, and I'll start in verse uh, 3, I mean, ver- uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the uh, tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. Now, what is he fixing to prey on right here? He is fixing to prey on the temptation that we have to be a God. The temptation that we have to want to bow to something else. Now I go into you say, well, you read through the Bible, you find, you know, that the Philistines had a God, and you find all these other what the Bible calls heathen nations have gods, and and you know, they're given names and all this kind of stuff. And he said, well, we don't really have those types of gods in America today, but we do. The one that I can think of the most name is Luke. Because it's easy for me to want to make myself a God and make myself and my desires and my thoughts higher than God's. And that was the temptation that Satan played on in the garden. And he got him. And he says, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods. That literally translates, you shall be God, knowing good and evil. So here, here Adam and Eve are, and the temptation that is laid before them is to do what the Lord will later tell us in Exodus that we are not to do. So my point is this, it is very much a temptation for us to make something an idol. Usually the easiest thing for us to make an idol is ourself. Now I've explained it this way sometimes that I'm married almost 20 years next week to my wife and Because she and I have that sacred union, there are things that that belong to just us two, right? And if I were to, you know, it's it's appropriate for me to to hold my wife's hand as as we walk, you know, down the way. It's appropriate for me to pull her close and to, to hug her and love her. It's appropriate for me uh, to just to express my deepest emotions and to talk to her and connect with her in special ways. That's reserved for her and her only. For me to take those things and share them with another is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, there are things that are reserved for the Lord. And that is our utmost worship and obedience. But when we take those things and give them to another, the Bible calls that idolatry. Right? God's desires, God's instructions, 
And we take those from God and say, I'm not going to follow those. I'm going to follow my own desires and my own feelings and my own thoughts. Then what have you done? You have just made yourself the idol and you have become you have started to worship something that is no longer God. And so when he writes out these Ten Commandments, he says, you're not supposed to have any God before me. Now listen, we can talk about football, we can talk about money, we can talk about fishing, and we can talk about hunting. We can talk about all the things that we love to do. But the God that we are most prone to worship is the God that looks at us from the mirror. Now, in thinking about this, there's a little, a little test that we need to take to say, am I worshiping myself more than I'm worshiping the Lord? And I wish the entire nation could hear this little test. Am I worshiping myself more than I'm worshiping the Lord? And there's four things that I want to ask you. The first question I want to ask you is how do you feel about sin? I want you to think about that for a second. How do you feel about sin? Because the Lord has been very clear on the things that please Him and the things that He considers an abomination and a sin against His holiness. He's been very clear. And I understand there are, there are areas of Christian liberty. I understand that. But then there are things in the Bible that, that, that He's very clear about. Right? So how do you feel about sin? Maybe you, maybe you walk up to that mirror... And that person looking back at you, at you from the mirror begins to talk to you and says, well, listen, it's really not that wrong. It's really, it's really okay if you do that. And you begin to listen to that person in the mirror. And what that person says in the mirror is contradicting what the Lord says. You might have an idol of yourself. Let me give you an example. And this is one I know nobody likes to talk about. But it's biblical. Do you know that statistics will tell you that fornication is out of control? Do you realize that we always focus on the issue of abortion, do we not? And we really get in an uproar about abortion as we should. But do you know that if we dealt with fornication that abortion will not even be an issue. Do you know that? If we conducted ourselves like the Lord tells us to conduct ourselves when it comes to that, abortion wouldn't even be an issue. And maybe some of you would have dealt with that in the past. And listen, I speak to you with compassion and I certainly don't despise you. But if the person looks back from you from the, that looks back at you from the mirror says, yeah, I know the Bible says that it is the will of God that we abstain from fornication. But I, I think we'll make an exception. You might have made an idol of your own self. Right? I knew a guy in high school one time. He, he may listen to this sermon one of these days. And he and his girlfriend were doing things they were not supposed to do according to the Word of God. And this is what he told me. He said, well, 
I was telling him, I said, you know, I, I don't think you need to be doing that stuff. He said, well, we've, we've talked about it. We've thought about it. And he said, I think as long as, you know, we don't, uh, you know, we don't uh, excessively do this, then it's okay. I want you to hear me now, and I'm trying to be discreet. He looked in the mirror, and that's what the mirror told him. And he said, that's what I want, not what the Lord wants. Brothers and sisters, he might as well have gotten on a knee and bowed to himself. Now listen, I do the same thing in other areas all the time. That's what I'm saying. The God that I have to struggle fighting against is my own self. What the mirror tells me is okay. We all do that. But that's a good example of a man bowing down to himself and saying, that's what I'm going to follow. Now, if you were to ask me, now obviously there have been, there have been times that I have not been alive you know, too long ago that there would be an exception to this. But I think right now is one of the most difficult times to preach that has, it has been in a long time. I think it is a hard time to preach now. It's especially hard to preach on repentance. Because, you know, there was a time in the Bible when it says Israel had no king and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. All right. If, and, and that's where we are today. Everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes and you can't correct anybody. You can't go to anybody and say, hey, I think what you're doing is this without them going, how dare you tell me that what I'm doing is wrong? Let me call Fox News and make sure you are the lead story for telling me that what I'm doing is wrong. You can't tell anybody anything. You sure can't preach on repentance and it be received very well because so many people in America are doing what is right in their own eyes. And if you think you're doing right, then you're not going to listen to anybody telling you any different, right? Now, I know, I know when you had Jonah and you had Jeremiah, those guys had it harder than we've got it today. But when was the last time you really saw somebody hear the message of God and repent over the way they've been? When was the last time you really saw somebody do that? I feel like when I was a child, you used to see that more. But it seems like you're seeing less and less. I can remember I went and preached a meeting in Tennessee one time. And I know that this is, this is not common and, and it, it's not, uh, I'm not going to say it was an inappropriate thing to do, but it's just not something we see very often. You sure don't need to air your dirty laundry in front of the whole congregation. But we got done preaching this meeting and we were sitting there and we shook hands and, and, and uh, the brother got up there that, that was the pastor there and he was fixing to close out and there was a young girl, she was probably 20 years old, she just stood up and said, I have just got to say something. And she didn't go into a whole, any detail. But with tears in her eyes, she said, I just want everybody in here to know that I have not been as faithful to the Lord as I should have been. And I could do a better job of serving Him. And I could do a better job of being a faithful member to this church and being the godly woman that the Lord told me to be. And I just want everybody to know that I'm sorry. I beg your forgiveness and I'm going to do it differently. And I was just like, we need more of that. 
Now, people in there might have been uncomfortable, but I don't think they were. It was the most refreshing display of repentance I had seen in a long time. You just don't see it that much anymore. Because everybody's doing what they think is right in their own eyes because we spend too little time in this and too much time looking at that mirror and listening to what he has or she has to say. Right? Sin is one of the tests. How do you feel about sin? Second one is how do you feel about Scripture? Now these all happen to start with an S and that is not my way. It just worked out that way. The second one is Scripture. How do you feel about Scripture? We all know the stories and you've heard people say before that, uh, that uh, there are certain verses in the Bible that they don't particularly care for. I remember a brother telling me one time that uh, he sat down with a lady and he was teaching her some things and she, he got over into Ephesians and she said, well, that's not in my Bible. And he said, yes, ma'am, it is. She says, no, it's not. I cut it out. She took her scissors or whatever and cut out that scripture because it did not suit her. So how do you feel about scripture? Are we willing to accept the full counsel of God? Or do we like to pick and choose the things that build a belief system in us? How do you feel about Scripture? Now, we believe that Scripture is inspired by God. It's God-breathed, and then men wrote it and penned it down, and it's profitable to us as children of God. It is a great instruction book. When I was in college, I remember a lady saying, well, she wasn't a lady, she was, I mean, she was my age. She was probably in her 20s, I guess. <clears throat> and I, I, I was uh, listening to her talk to the, to the guy beside me, who was a, a faithful follower of Christ. And this, this guy was, he was a good, good friend of mine, great example to me. And, and he was talking to her about the Lord and some stuff. And she said, well, she said, you know, I just, I've just kind of turned away from the Bible. And I can't remember exactly what it was that she went into, um, but it was whatever it was, it was some sort of religion that took the Bible and included some other things as being uh, divinely inspired. I don't remember exactly what it was. And one of her comments was, she said, uh, I just don't feel like the Bible answers all the questions about how to live your life. And I was thinking, well, my goodness, by the time I've gotten through reading it, I've forgotten half of it. And it's probably in there. You know, I mean, uh, to exhaust this thing would be would, is very time consuming. But the Bible itself tells us that God's word is given to us. And it is profitable for us for doctrine, for instruction in righteousness, for, for uh, correction and for reproof. It's in there. What we need to be godly, profitable citizens in the kingdom of God is right here. So do you go to this for that? How do you feel about Scripture? You can go down to the bookstore and you can find a whole lot of self-help things and probably some of those are very good but if we're absorbing those and we're turning a blind eye to this you might be worshiping yourself now let's go on to number three if i haven't made you twitch yet probably will how do you feel about sin how do you feel about scripture how do you feel about Sunday? 
How do you feel about Sunday? You get up Sunday morning, you're tired, right? It's your weekend. You don't have to work, maybe. You stroll in there and you look at that mirror. What does the mirror say to you? Go back to bed. (laughs) Go hunting. Right? You deserve it. You've worked hard. You're a good person. You're a good father. You're a good mother. You're a good employer, employer. You, you've done good this week. Why don't you just go on back to bed? Why don't you go enjoy the pretty day? Right? The Lord tells us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. I preached a sermon at Bethlehem a couple, maybe a month or two ago, on the benefits and the reasons of going to church. And in that study, I can't remember exactly, but I think I listed eight, maybe eight different benefits and reasons for going to church. And only one of them had to do with you as an individual receiving something personal. Most of it was for the benefit of the others there. And I wish my memory was better, but I can't can't remember all of them. But you know... Sometimes you need to be here to see who is not here, right? Sometimes you need to be here because you have no idea what other people are dealing with. And you have no idea as you walk out those front steps that the Lord may put His Spirit inside of you and through you offer a word of encouragement to somebody that completely changes their outlook. But you can't do it if you're not here. Right? You can contribute to the song service. It's a good song service this morning. But you know, I've been in churches, primitive Baptist churches, where I guess people listen to the mirror too much and there just weren't enough people there to really even carry a song. There's many different reasons to get up and go to church. And the Lord, if nothing else, the main reason is because the Lord said to do it. It's also interesting when you go through, I think it was the book of John and the book of Mark, how many different times it makes a point to tell us that when it came time for the Sabbath, they went to the synagogue. It even says Jesus went into the synagogue as his custom was. Hmm. You know, you remember a a while back, um, the big WWJD kick Everybody had these little bracelets and t-shirts, WWJD, what would Jesus do? The Bible tells us what He was going to do on the Sabbath. His custom was to go to church. Well, I'm just, the mirror says, I, if you go to church, then you get home, the grass has got to be cut, we've got to get all this done, and I've got to get it all done before dark, and the mirror starts to talk to us. And the temptation, as the Lord knew it would be, is to go down on a knee and bow to that mirror and forsake the assembly. So maybe our thoughts on Sunday can give us a little idea of whether or not we're worshiping ourselves. Let me give you one more. What about, all right, we've done sin, scripture, Sunday. What about salvation? How do you feel about salvation? 
there, uh, and most all of you know that I, uh, I came to the Primitive Baptist Church maybe 10 years ago or so. Uh, so I know, uh, I know the, uh, the thought process of, uh, you know, accepting Jesus. And, and I understand, you know, where those people are coming from and, and that that's how you're saved and things like that. But, you know, in Jesus' time, when He would begin to walk and talk and teach, you know, there comes a time when Jesus says that no man can come to the Father, no man can come to Me, except My Father which has sent Me draw them. And do you know what it says right after that? It says, And many of His disciples walked with Him no more. Because they did not like being cut out of the picture. You know, that's, that's our nature, right? Our nature is to want to receive credit for something. That does, at least it is mine. I hope it is yours too. I'm just making myself really embarrassed. <laughs> but our nature is to receive credit, right? I want you to imagine this. Imagine... Uh, Somebody, one of your friends has gone off to vacation. And you and another person decide while they're gone on vacation, we are going to go to their house, cut their grass, edge the driveway. We're going to remulch their flower beds. We're going to trim the shrubs. We're going to go, we're going to power wash the driveway. We're going to go inside, paint the walls, clean the carpet, do everything. This is going to be, I mean, top-notch home makeover. And you and the other person that helped you are standing there, and they pull up in the driveway, and they walk up, and they say, oh, this is wonderful. And they hug the other person's neck, and they thank them for what they've done, and they can't shut up about how thankful they are for what the other person's done, and they never even look at you. How do you feel? We like credit. We like to be recognized. And that's why the disciples said, I'm not hearing this. If you're cutting us out of the picture, we will walk with you no more. When Jesus preached on His sovereignty, and when Jesus preached the doctrines that we still preach today in the Primitive Baptist Church, people said, I can't handle that. Because we like credit. And I'm afflicted with the same thing. When you start talking about the doctrine of grace, when you start using words like predestination and election, when you start talking about that salvation is solely the work of the Lord, and that while discipleship is very dependent upon our obedience and our walking with the Lord, our eternal salvation is not. You are going to see people get mad because we like credit but no but I but I but I did this but I did this here's one of the proofs in that and I hate to use this example but it's, it's, it paints a very powerful picture of that mindset I have seen many many times somebody come down the aisle and pray a prayer with the preacher and the preacher turn around and, and at that time the belief was all of a sudden this person was translated into the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. 
And I'm not saying every time, but the vast majority of the time, this, it went something like this. So-and-so has made the best decision of their life. We're so proud of so-and-so. So-and-so just made the best decision. So-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. The Bible says we're saved by grace, not by works, so that we cannot make boasting a possibility. Salvation has to be and done in such a way, not that we, that, not that we shouldn't boast, that we cannot boast, that it is a complete impossibility to take credit for our salvation, even a part of it. So the question is, how do you feel about salvation? Do you feel like, well, I prayed, I, I repented, I believed. I'll tell you something I told Bethlehem the other day, and I don't know why this has never come to me. But it came to me the other day. I repented. I believed. I confessed. I prayed. I accepted. I was baptized. Anybody want to tell me the verbs in those sentences? What's the verb in I believed? What's the verb in I confessed? What is the verb that is a word that shows action in I accepted? We're saved by grace, not by works. We're not saved by verbs that we do. But we want to be. And so we have formulated a, a, an idea that Jesus kind of met us halfway. Yeah. And then we go over there and we take Jesus' hand and what Jesus did and what I did gets me to heaven. Well, when Jesus said, sorry, that's not the way it is, the disciples said, no more. I'm going this way. How do you feel about sin? How do you feel about Scripture? How do you feel about Sunday? How do you feel about salvation? Now, the guy that's looking me back in from, from the mirror is a pretty nasty looking rascal right now. And there's times that I hate him. Because that old black wicked heart that is very deceitful and desperately wicked is crafty and he knows how to get me going down to my knees. He's a sweet talker. How does God view idols? In Hosea, there, there are passages in the Bible that are very lengthy about idols and idolatry. It's very easily summed up in Hosea, the fourth chapter, the 17th verse. It says, Ephraim, which is Israel, it says, Ephraim has joined to his idols, let him alone. Now, the Lord is long suffering, and in an eternal sense, he will never leave us nor forsake us. But the Bible is explicitly clear that when we bow the knee to the mirror or to whatever else the other little G God might be, there comes a point when God says they've joined to their idols, just leave them alone. Now, the Bible is also explicitly clear that idols cannot save. Idols cannot deliver and idols cannot save. The Bible speaking of idols it says they have sown to the wind, let them reap the whirlwind. Hey, that we, we're, we're, that's hard to say. We are reaping 
the whirlwind right now, are we not, in our nation? When you, now, if you just are looking for a good time and stand back, you don't think America's got any problems. But when you stand back from the kingdom of God, looking outward through spiritual glasses, you see a whirlwind. Because that's what we've sown to. We've sown to idol worship. And we're reaping the whirlwind because of it. And then we cry out, Oh no, what is going on? We need some help. We need some help. We need some help. And you know what the Lord says? Cry out to your God that you've been bowing down to and see what they can do. Let the man in the mirror deliver you in this situation. You know, I talked to a girl for a period of time, a, a faithful a faithful primitive Baptist. And you've all seen it. You've seen people give in to the mirror when it starts talking about Sunday. And she got more and more irregular on Sundays. And and I, I, would, I would talk to her. Say, hey, we miss you. We love you. Spend time with her. There's always an excuse. Well, this happened. Well, this happened. And, and to start out with, I thought, I understand. You know, a couple years went by and you just couldn't find her anywhere, ever at church. <clears throat> she came to me one day and she said, and she was just having problem on top of problem. From, uh, there, there was such a direct co- correlation from the time that she started walking away from church to her life falling apart. It, it, it sent chills up your spine and she sat down with me one day with her life in a wreck. And she said, Would, I need you to pray for me because I don't think God hears my prayers. And you know what I thought to myself? I wonder if he's waiting on the person in the mirror to answer them. I wonder if he's waiting for you to see that the idol that you've been bowing to cannot save. And when you get to the point where you realize this thing that I have been worshiping cannot save me, that's when the Lord is there waiting and ready. He from His joy to His idols, let Him alone. Now, John gives us a very clear... You know, I like to preach in such a way and I'm probably not doing a very good job of it today. I like for the little ones to be able to understand what I'm talking about. John writes in 1 John, he, he writes for the little ones. And he says, little children... Keep yourselves from idols. That's pretty plain and simple, right? Now, I'm going to flip back over to Hosea for just a second as I get ready to close here. That's a hard book to find. In a time where Israel had been left alone, in a time where God said, leave Israel alone, they've joined their idols, They've got to come to the conclusion that their idols cannot save. When they repent, this is what they said. It says, Ashur, which is Assyria, Ashur shall not save us. We will not ride upon horses. And notice this. Neither will we say any more to the work of our hands to the man or woman in the mirror. Ye are our gods. He said they got to the point where they said nothing's going to save me. And I'm going to quit looking in the mirror and bow down saying, you're my God. 
Because you're a lousy Savior. Now, let me leave you with this. When you look in that mirror, you know what you need to see is not an idol. You need to see a servant. When you look in the mirror, you should be looking at a servant of the Most High God who does not say, what do you want? But what does the Lord desire? That's the attitude that we ought to have. Because when Sunday rolls around and you're saying, what does the Lord desire? You don't have to decipher that code. That's pretty clear. How does the Lord feel about sin? What does the Lord feel about this sin in my life? How does the Lord teach us about salvation? How does the Lord teach us about Scripture? The man that looks at us from the mirror should not be a God. Even though we're very tempted for it to be, it should be a servant. But when the Lord said, going full circle back around to Moses and he wrote on those tablets, you shall have no other gods before me, he knew how prone we would be to let that happen. We cannot change this whole world. But you know, as a matter of fact, I feel like I can have very little, if any, impact on it. Now the Lord through me can do that. But I can have an impact on my home. I encourage you to start right there. Have an impact on your home. And when you look in the mirror of your home, don't bow down to it. And if we will all do that together, the only one left standing that can be high lifted up is God Himself. I hope that that has been profitable to you this morning.